The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. In Pensacola, Florida, 2017, 33-year-old Taylor Wright was a newly divorced mom struggling to rebuild her life. As Taylor dealt with exhausting custody proceedings, she decided to reach out to a good friend for help. She could have never have imagined that one of the people she'd grown to trust the most would deceive her in the worst possible way. Join me now as we take a look into the sudden disappearance of a private investigator who seemed to have vanished without a trace. You'll hear how her out-of-character behavior led those closest to her to believe something was terribly wrong, and the heartbreaking truth about what really happened to her. Taylor Wright was a strong, funny, infectious badass and good friend. She loved to fish, work out, have a beer with friends, and would reliably and often surreptitiously pick up the tab. She loved her dogs, was afraid of spiders, and hated cats, until one became her best friend. In an essay written by one of Taylor's old friends, this is how she's remembered. It's also the description her friend hopes Taylor's son will read about his mother one day, when he looks her name up on the internet. Not that she was a victim, because Taylor's friend believes Taylor would have hated that. In Taylor's friend's words, Taylor was not a victim. She trusted the wrong people. She made mistakes. She was killed following a few of them. But she was not a victim. Taylor was far from that. She was a fighter, going as far back as her childhood. Despite being born into an unstable home, Taylor found hope for a brighter future with foster parent Nancy Murchison. Who eventually adopted her. It was on Nancy's farm, about three hours from Pensacola, Florida, that Taylor first discovered her love for horses and the outdoors. Although things had started off rough for Taylor, her new life surrounded by fresh air and the love of a supportive parent helped her blossom into a strong young woman. As she grew older, Taylor developed a strong desire to help others, as well as a strong moral code a drive that eventually pushed her to study criminal justice at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. In 2003, while still at college, Taylor met Jeff Wright, who she eventually married in 2005. Jeff was in the military, and the couple shared similar interests. After graduating with a bachelor's degree, Jeff supported Taylor's dream of joining the North Carolina Police Academy. For several months, Taylor underwent rigorous daily combat and firearms training before finally earning her certification in 2008 and joining the Jacksonville Police Department in North Carolina. But after only a year on the job, Taylor discovered she was pregnant and took a leave of absence until late 2009. Several years after giving birth to their son Drake, 
Taylor returned back to work in 2011, where she diligently worked to protect the streets of Jacksonville, all while raising a young son, who she adored, and her husband remained in active duty. In the fall of 2013, Jeff received orders to move to a new post back in Pensacola, and so Taylor decided to leave her job in Jacksonville to follow Jeff back to her hometown. But following their return, things began to go sideways. After nearly 10 years of marriage, Taylor and Jeff began arguing. In fact, the arguments were becoming more frequent and sometimes even escalated to violence. By March of 2015, Jeff moved out, leading them to file for divorce in June of that year. It was a bitter conflict as they fought over assets and the custody of their son. Even after the courts came to their decisions over both, Taylor and Jeff never seemed to be able to come to a compromise, and Jeff was granted full custody of Drake. Although Taylor remained close with her son and spending as much time with him as she could, it wasn't the scenario she'd hoped for. After leaving the police force back in 2013, Taylor became a private investigator, mostly tracking down fraud cases for insurance companies. She was trying to put the pieces of her life back together while dealing with the stresses of divorce. Finally, on December 30, 2016, the divorce was finalized and Taylor was once again on her own. For a time, Taylor focused on her two main passions, her job and her son. That is, until April of 2017, when she started seeing Cassandra Waller. Things were beginning to look up for Taylor. Not only had she found someone who shared similar passions, Taylor's PI business was also starting to pick up. Although Taylor and her ex still hadn't been able to reach any sort of mutual agreement around custody of their son, Taylor now at least had something positive in her life to distract her from the stress of it all. While the divorce proceedings continued, the family assets were frozen, preventing Jeff and Taylor from accessing their joint bank accounts until June 12, 2017. Immediately, Taylor withdrew $100,000 from the joint savings account without telling Jeff, converting the funds into cash and various cashier's checks so the money couldn't be frozen again. She then asked her friend Ashley MacArthur to hold on to one of the checks in the amount of $34,000 while placing the rest of the cash and checks in various other locations, including Cassandra's home. Realizing money had been taken from the account, Jeff had a new court date set for September 7, 2017. If by that time, Taylor hadn't placed $25,000 into an escrow account along with unpaid child support, she'd be held in contempt and could be looking at serving jail time. As the court date got closer, Taylor's lawyer filed for a continuance at the last minute, using Hurricane Irma forming off the Gulf Coast as the reason. In reality, Taylor needed more time to get her financial situation back in order, including getting her money back from Ashley. But it seemed whenever she attempted to make plans with Ashley to get the money back, something would come up, increasing Taylor's sense of anxiety. In the midst of the financial chaos, Taylor had also decided to move in with Cassandra. Although things had been going great between them, Cassandra couldn't help but feel worried about Taylor, who wasn't her usual upbeat, positive self. With her new court date of September 12th just around the corner, 
Taylor was finally able to get Ashley to agree to meet her for dinner on September 7th so they could make solid plans to get her money back. Taylor had met Ashley through Ashley's husband, Zachary MacArthur, who was also a private investigator. Ashley, too, had worked in law enforcement as a crime scene investigator before resigning in 2006. After being introduced, Taylor and Ashley realized they had a lot in common, sharing a love for horseback riding and began spending a fair bit of time together. So on September 7th, Taylor and Ashley met at a local restaurant, with Cassandra arriving to join them a short time later. As Cassandra sat down with them, she sensed some tension between the two friends and heard them briefly mention going to a bank the next morning together. The next morning, on September 8th, Taylor and Cassandra had breakfast together before Ashley came to pick up Taylor around 10 a.m. Cassandra said goodbye before leaving and told Taylor she'd see her later in the evening for their dinner plans. Throughout the day, Cassandra sent casual texts to Taylor, as she always did, checking in on her and asking her how she was doing. Around noon, Taylor texts back and said she'd tell her later. Assuming she and Ashley were busy, Cassandra went about her day, but a few hours later, she started getting worried when she hadn't heard from Taylor and texted her again. She also tried calling her, but never got an answer. Cassandra decided to text Ashley next, but instead of getting a text back, Ashley called Cassandra and assured her everything was fine. She said Taylor was just upset over the divorce, had cried a few times, but was now busy riding the horse. Cassandra understood, but still asked Ashley to tell Taylor to call her. But by 5 p.m., Cassandra still hadn't heard from Taylor, and she was now running late for their dinner plans. After texting and calling Taylor's phone over and over again, she still got no reply. So around 7 p.m., Cassandra texted Ashley again, asking, Where are you guys? Ashley texted back, What do you mean she's not home? She left my house around quarter after five. Ashley then explained that Taylor had decided to take an Uber downtown after they hung out to have a drink and chill for a while before going home. She said Taylor had with her a brown bag filled with clothes, along with another grayish black bag filled with checks and cash. Cassandra was confused. Taylor wasn't much of a drinker, and what was with the bags? At around 8 p.m., Cassandra finally got a text from Taylor's phone, saying she needed to get her life organized and back on track. Cassandra was bewildered. They'd had some issues in their relationship back in July, but everything seemed to be okay now. Close to midnight on September 8th, Cassandra received a text from Ashley that included a screenshot, which showed a message from Taylor's phone to Ashley. What it said was, she was stressed about the court date and the move, meaning the move to Cassandra's. Right away, the text seemed odd, because although Taylor was stressed about the court date, as far as Cassandra could see, Taylor was excited about moving in with her. The strange text messages, the duffel bags filled with clothes and money, taking off, it all seemed very out of character for Taylor. But then again, Taylor worked as a private investigator. Part of her training required learning how to disappear without a trace. Cassandra knew that if Taylor wanted to vanish, she easily could. 
She also wondered if their breakup back in July had anything to do with it all. On September 9th, when Cassandra still hadn't heard from Taylor, she decided it was time to call police and inform them about the situation. She told them how she hadn't heard from Taylor about the stresses she was feeling about the divorce, not having custody of her son, the money she'd taken, and that Taylor also knew how to disappear if she wanted to. It was that point that didn't seem to have the police too concerned. From their perspective, it appeared very likely that Taylor had chosen to disappear, especially if she planned to kidnap her son, and they advised her to give Taylor's ex the heads up. The next day, Cassandra decided to call Jeff, informing him of Taylor's disappearance. That's when she discovered Drake too had been trying to reach his mom for a couple of days, but couldn't seem to get in touch with her. When Jeff heard Taylor was missing, he became concerned and warned Cassandra that Taylor was a fully trained police officer and potentially dangerous. If she was trying to disappear, she wouldn't be happy Cassandra had called police, and now him, and he warned her to protect herself. Just under a week after Taylor first disappeared, Cassandra went back to the Pensacola police to report her missing. Assigned to the case were Detectives Richard Gigliotti and Chad Willite. Detective Wilhite immediately started questioning people closest to Taylor, including Cassandra. They wanted to trace Taylor's steps back to the last day she'd been seen. Both Cassandra and Jeff's whereabouts checked out, which turned detectives' attention on the last person to see Taylor alive, Ashley MacArthur. On September 15th, detectives spoke with Ashley over the phone. She said she'd picked up Taylor in the morning of the 8th, around 10 a.m., Next, she said, they drove to her office in Pensacola, then stopped at a gas station on Beulah Road on the way to a house apparently involved in a case Taylor was investigating. Following that, she said, they headed up to her family's farm in Milton and then back to her house in Pensacola. Taylor then left in an Uber by herself at approximately 5 p.m. On September 18th, Detectives showed up at Ashley's home unannounced, hoping to take a look around her property. What she told them next were a series of stories about Taylor, painting her as a deceptive person with a compulsion to lie. She talked about Taylor owning a second secret phone, rumors about her not being able to return to the police force, possibly due to integrity issues. She suggested Taylor struggled with substance abuse, lied to her friends about being in a relationship with a woman, and on and on. When detectives straight out asked Ashley what her feelings were on everything, she said she thought Taylor was just off acting like a nut. Although at first she said she was worried about Taylor, now she just thought she was playing everyone. The way Ashley described Taylor, it was a wonder she even considered her a friend. Ashley then went on to show detectives around their property agreeing to meet them afterward down at the police station for a formal interview. There she continued to describe Taylor in a negative light. On one hand, she claimed she felt like she had no idea who Taylor really was, but on the other hand, seemed to know every single detail about Taylor's life. Do you think you know somebody, you think you try to help them, and then, then you come to find out, like, you have no clue who they are, and... It's just like, what? 
I let my child around this person, and I don't know, you know? As detectives continued to question Ashley, she portrayed herself as the polar opposite to Taylor. In contrast, she was a trustworthy and benevolent friend who always went out of her way to be there for Taylor throughout her divorce. She talked about lending Taylor over $20,000 while her bank accounts were frozen and helping her to move what was only supposed to be a few boxes to Cassandra's house. Annoyed it had turned into so many boxes, they ended up filling her family's box truck to the brim. As detectives continued pressing for more information, they began to specifically focus on Taylor's money issues. Ashley admitted she'd known about the money Taylor had taken from the joint bank account with Jeff. She said because Taylor wanted to avoid a bank subpoena, which could freeze the accounts again, she turned the $100,000 she took from the account into cash and various cashier's checks. She said she kept some of the cash and checks in a duffel bag and gave Ashley a $34,000 check to deposit into one of her bank accounts. She told detectives it had been agreed the check was payback for the money Ashley had loaned Taylor. Detectives wanted to know more about the supposed second phone Taylor had and asked Ashley if she'd ever been contacted by Taylor with the other phone. She replied it was possible and offered to allow detectives to download the contents of her phone. Do you want me to leave it with you? It's up to you. I mean, I can't. It's entirely up to you. Um, that's actually what um, another individual did. I mean, that's fine with me. Although Ashley had handed her phone over to detectives, they weren't able to open any of the files from it because they were all encrypted. When they asked Ashley for passwords for her phone, she gave the wrong ones. Before stopping by Ashley's earlier that day, they paid a visit to Cassandra Waller's home. Inside a room where Taylor kept some of her things, detectives found her passport, ID, and the cashier's check for $19,000. They were also surprised to find a six-shot revolver loaded with five bullets. Detectives questioned Cassandra, who explained that Jeff's warning about Taylor had scared her and she decided to purchase a small firearm for protection, just in case. By that point, she was so confused and had no idea what to believe or expect. But if Taylor had indeed taken off, why would she have left her passport and a $19,000 check? It didn't make sense. While they questioned Cassandra on Taylor's whereabouts, detectives flat out asked her if she'd killed Taylor. Terrified and inconsolable, Cassandra maintained her innocence, and eventually she was finally dropped as a suspect again. Back at the Pensacola Police Department, detectives found themselves back at square one and decided to file for a search warrant for Taylor's phone records in order to try and track its location. Finally, detectives hit a break when Taylor's phone records came in. Sure enough, a cell tower had pinged Taylor on the northern edge of the county the day she went missing. New information that now contradicted Ashley's claims of them being east in Milton. Detectives immediately subpoenaed phone and bank records for Ashley and Zachary MacArthur, hoping to find a connection. And there it was. Ashley's cell phone records placed her northwest of Pensacola on September 8th, nearly an hour away from East Milton in the area of Beulah Road for the majority of the day. Not for a short time, 
As Ashley had indicated in her earlier interviews, not only that, her cell phone records didn't place her anywhere near Milton until later that evening. Detectives then discovered a relative of Ashley's owned some property nearby the Beulah area on Britt Road. Ashley's bank statements also showed a deposit for $34,000 made in Taylor Wright's name. The statements further revealed that over a 24-hour period, large amounts gradually vanished until only $627 remained. Detectives were faced with the grim possibility Taylor Wright may have been murdered for her money. Immediately, they requested a search warrant for the property on Britt Road. 42 days since Taylor's disappearance, detectives arranged for Ashley to meet them at 8 a.m. on October 19, 2017. In the weeks before, Ashley had made several calls to detectives asking for updates on Taylor's case, suggesting once that Taylor might be in Destin, Florida, and another time suggesting they should check rehab centers for her. Once Ashley was at police headquarters, a team of investigators were cleared to begin searching her family's 23-acre property on Britt Road, a massive undertaking that would take some time. Ashley was friendly and talkative throughout the beginning of her interview, having absolutely no clue about what was underway. As detectives asked Ashley again about the days leading up to Taylor going missing, Ashley suddenly wasn't as talkative or forthcoming with information as she previously had been. In fact, whereas before her body posture seemed relaxed, as she leaned over the desk with one leg casually propped and resting on the other, her arms were now crossed and her foot was wrapped around the back of her leg like a pretzel. When they inquired about Ashley's cousin Kyle Britt, who lived on the family farm on Britt Road, Ashley lied and said she didn't know where he lived and referred to him as an interesting character. When asked about Taylor's demeanor the day they hung out, Ashley said she didn't get the impression Taylor seemed overly anxious or depressed. Not exactly how she described Taylor's mood to Cassandra the day she went missing. When detectives asked Ashley to describe where she and Taylor went the last day she saw her, Ashley stuck to her story. Never once did she mention her and Taylor spending any time at her family's property on Britt Road. Up until that point during the interview, Detective Gigliotti had taken the lead in questioning Ashley, his demeanor inquisitive but friendly, often making small talk in between asking direct questions. But about midway through the interrogation video, you can begin to see Detective Wilhite shifting around in his chair, getting ready to play bag cop. He then pulls his chair in forward and starts explaining to Ashley how pings off of cell towers work. Alright, uh, do you know how cell towers work and how phones communicate with cell towers? What happens is your phone is still communicating with the tower, even okay. if it's in this building. It's telling us that way it knows if you get a call. Except the tower is promised to um, And based off that, the tower 
can tell you what sector of the tower you're communicating with. But when we started plotting all the phone calls that you and Taylor were making that day, um, there were some discrepancies in what you had told us. Okay. Okay. Um, we know that you didn't go to Milton when you said you went to Milton. Not when you said you went there. Oh. You went that evening. Oh, okay. Around 7, yeah. 30, 8 o'clock. Maybe you went to dinner out there or something. Who all went to dinner out there with you? Me So, there are some discrepancies. So, what we did is we had the ability to plot all your phone calls for that day. Um, where you were. Um, now, at 12.10, you are in here. We know that your aunt and uncle and Kyle own the farm there on Brick Road. Right. And it's showing that you're probably near that farm, or if not, at that farm. And you're there when, this is the time when you're telling us that you're probably in Milton or headed towards Milton. Because it's 12.10 uh, in the afternoon. 12.10. 
really that whole day was not, I mean, like, us going to my office for anything. Well, I think something happened and you're trying to forget about it, personally. When you say you're not sure if you went back out, it probably didn't. You actually did go back out there at 2.45. And you were out there for quite a while. Again. So, really, in essence, you spent, it seems like, at least a large portion of the majority of your day out here. It really wasn't, though. I mean, we were... Several hours. Here and... As detectives continue to press Ashley for answers, Detective Gigliotti takes the lead again and tries to appeal to Ashley's benevolent side, affirming what a good person he believes her to be. The thing is, I know you're not a bad person. Right? This is a person, you're someone who tells me that if your friend goes in the hospital, you're going on a vacation, right, to probably one of the funniest, funnest cities in the southeast region. Right? Awesome. So you're going to this place that's going to be a blast. With friends that are going to be fun to be around. I'm sure. Right? And then you have one of your friends who goes to the hospital. Instead of you going out with other people who continue to go on and have fun, am I, am I right? Right. To Sandra and Taylor. Uh, you say, you know what? My friend's more important. I'm going to the hospital with my friend. Right. Right? Not only did you do that, you told me that you went back to Pensacola, took care of business that you had no choice but to take care of. And instead of going on about your married way, you drove back over here, back over New Orleans to see your friend check on your friend. I can tell you now, I have probably very few, if any, friends that I would do that for. Which tells me that you're probably a nicer person than I am. Right? I, and I believe that. I believe that story. I believe without a doubt that you went back just to check on your friend and to see how she was. And only a decent person would do that. Right, you have nothing. What do you have to gain by driving all the way back in my So, you know, again, we're talking about a little baby boy who's missing his mom, and we need to let him know what happened. When directly questioned about what happened to Taylor, Ashley continued to deny knowing, so Detective Gigliotti stepped in again to give her an out a way of admitting she knew something had happened to Taylor without incriminating herself, but she wouldn't budge. If you were put in a situation where someone pushed you to do something for whatever reason, maybe against your will, perhaps in self-defense, if something happened and you're scared, don't be scared. Okay, if something happened, like I said, you're not a bad person. You're, you're not a career criminal. This is a person who's traveled across states to take care of a friend. If something happened, tell us. I don't know where she is. We, we have a detective talking to Kyle right now. We know you have text Kyle and ask him if he was in that car on the 8th. Multiple we times. may have. I mean, I don't... Then you withhold that information from us. The person who is trying to help a friend out, who cares for their friends, that lie to the police when they are looking for them. I didn't think that that was... Tell me what you did to her. I didn't do anything to her. Tell me what Zach did. Somebody harmed her, and she's probably out of that bar. Zach, it was never even around her. Kyle. Kyle's never been around her. Brandon. never been around her. So that leaves you. So you're the only one that was with her on this day at this farm that you did not disclose to us. 
Eventually, Ashley was very aware they suspected she was responsible for Taylor's disappearance and refused to talk anymore, requesting an attorney. In the meantime, cadaver dogs and roughly 24 law enforcement were executing a search warrant on the Brit Road farm. But after about four to five hours, the search had revealed nothing and detectives Gigliotti and Wilhite had no other choice but to release Ashley. Certain Taylor had to be on the property. The detectives were feeling crushed, but as they spoke to an investigator on the scene, a shocking discovery was suddenly made. Steve Holmes, a fish and wildlife officer who'd been following the fence line of the property, spotted a pile of freshly cut limbs on the other side of the fence and instinctively knew to check it out. We were walking down this fence line I saw some branches that were piled up on the edge of the woods and they were fresh. So I told him to hold up, let's see what this is. I started pulling them away and I looked underneath it. I found uh, it was a pile of potting soil and concrete. And I noticed a small metal grommet from a tarp on the ground. Officer Petty, who was with me, he lifted a piece of the concrete up and uh, when he did, he uncovered a, just a bunch of maggots. He put it back down, and then I looked to the right, probably a couple of feet, and um, I saw a portion of a human skull that was exposed from the ground. More skeletal remains were found underneath. Investigators also found a necklace tangled in hair and earth, a thin strip of leather with a bullet fixed on the end as a pendant a perfect match to the one Taylor was last seen wearing. Although Ashley had already left the precinct, a surveillance team was following her and were keeping an eye on her. As soon as the orders were given, Ashley MacArthur was placed under arrest. Once Ashley was in police custody, the remains found on the farm were gathered and sent for examination. Dental records confirmed what detectives already suspected. The remains belong to Taylor Wright. Finally, over a month after her disappearance, Taylor had been found, but not in the way anyone could have imagined. Running off to start a new life would have been better. Anything would have been better, because it would mean Taylor was still alive. Despair struck like a bolt of lightning over Taylor's shocked loved ones. Cassandra was in utter disbelief, especially when she learned about Ashley's involvement. Jeff was left with the gut-wrenching task of breaking the devastating news to his seven-year-old son that he'd never see her talk to his mom again, that she'd never be coming back. Taylor's mom, Nancy, was now faced with burying her daughter, a day no parent ever expects or can be prepared for. But before Ashley could be put away for a crime, detectives would need to spend the next two years gathering enough information to ensure her conviction. During their investigation, detectives wound up uncovering 
far more about Ashley than they anticipated. It appeared that at some point, Taylor had asked Ashley for the 34 grand she'd put in her trust. Totally unaware, it had all been spent. Not only did they discover Ashley had been using Taylor's money to pay off credit cards and car payments, she'd also been having an affair with a man she'd spent an exuberant amount of money on in the months leading up to Taylor's disappearance. Bar owner Brandon Beatty. Now, Mr. Beatty, back in 2016 and 2017, did you own a bar or a, like a pool hall? Yes, ma'am. Okay. And what was the name of it? Uh, Sticks Billiards. Did you meet Ashley MacArthur through Sticks? Yes, ma'am. Okay. And when did you first meet her? Uh, when I purchased the, the, the business. Okay. Do you remember approximately when that was? Uh, maybe uh, August. 2016? 16, I believe it was. And initially, what was your what was your relationship with Ms. MacArthur? Uh, just business. And um, at some point, did you and Ms. MacArthur start a sexual relationship? Yes, ma'am. And did there come a point where Ms. MacArthur was um, spending money on your business? Uh, yes, ma'am. Did there come a time when Ms. MacArthur was spending money on you personally? Yes, ma'am. About how long um, into your um, friendship or relationship did that start occurring? Mm -hmm. Pretty much out the gate. Okay. Was she paying the Gulf Power bill at Sticks? She did a couple times. Okay. Was she buying alcohol for your business? Mm, I'm not sure. Maybe so. Okay. Um, was she buying supplies at Sam's Club for your business? Yes, ma'am, she did. Okay. Um, in approximately August of 2017, did she buy your motorcycle? I'm not sure that I, yes, she did purchase a motorcycle. Okay. What color was it? Blue and black. Do you know how much that motorcycle cost? Uh, I, I think it was like 8000 or maybe just a hair more. Okay. And do you know how Ms. MacArthur paid for this uh, motorcycle? Cash. Did Ms. MacArthur also buy you a boat? Yes, ma'am. How much was that boat? Uh, thirty grand. During Ashley's trial, several witnesses were called to testify, including Audrey Warner, a bartender at Sticks Billiards and a good friend of Ashley's. At some time in 2017, did you work for Sticks Billiards? Yes. Okay. And when did you first start working there? Mm. March 2017. Okay. What did you do for Sticks? Bartender. While you worked there, did you meet uh, this defendant seated over here, Ashley MacArthur? Yes, ma'am. And when you first met her, um, what what was she doing up there at Sticks? Um, she would come in because her and her family owned some pool tables, jukeboxes, and uh, I do believe one of the games. So would she kind of, I guess, either service or, or take money from those machines? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Audrey revealed that Ashley wasn't exactly as caring and concerned for Taylor as she'd been leading people to believe. What types of things, um, if anything, did Ashley say about Taylor? Um, that she was annoying and she wished that she would leave her alone. Did there come a time um, where Ashley said something about harming Taylor? Uh, about putting cocaine in her beer. Okay. And can you tell us um, if you recall the date and where this conversation took place? Um, September 7th at Sticks Billiards. Okay. And who all was there? Me, Ashley, and Jessica. And um, 
What did Ashley say to you about Taylor that night? That the world would be a better place without Taylor. Okay, and you said something about cocaine. What specifically did Ashley say about cocaine? Um, how much coke do you think it would take to kill somebody? After this conversation about Taylor and cocaine, did you go anywhere? Yes, ma'am. Where did you go? Me and Ashley left and went to Babes. Okay, do you remember approximately what time it was? I think between 10.30 and 11. Okay. And why did you and Ashley leave Sticks to go to Babes? To purchase some cocaine. Who were you going to purchase cocaine from? A gentleman named, who went by T. Who arranged um, the deal with T? Ashley. Who drove from Sticks to Babes? I did. When you got to Babes, did either you or Ashley go inside, or how did, how did that take place? No, ma'am. He came outside of my vehicle. He meaning T? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Um, and how much cocaine was purchased? $250 worth. Did Ashley tell you, either before, during, or after you went to Babes, what she was going to do with the cocaine? She said that she was going to put it in Taylor's beard. At some point after this night on September 7th, 2017, did you ask Ashley what she did with the cocaine? Yes, ma'am, on September 8th. Okay, that would have been the next day? Yes, ma'am. Do you remember approximately what time you talked to her? No, ma'am. Okay. Um, did you call her or did she call you? I feel like I called her. Okay. And um, how did that conversation go? I think I asked, what did she do with it? And what did she tell you? That she put it in her beer and Taylor spit it out because she said it tasted sour. Detectives theorized that when Taylor kept pushing Ashley to return her money, instead of taking her to the bank on September 8th like she promised, she gave Taylor the runaround. At some point during the day, she'd attempted getting Taylor to drink a beer spiked with cocaine, but when that didn't work, decided to shoot her when her back was turned at the Brit Road property. How she managed to convince Taylor to go out to the farm is anyone's guess. But assuming they both loved horses, and Ashley was boarding one there, could have been a part of it. In her closing arguments, Prosecutor Jensen outlined the facts they'd presented to the jury throughout the trial, as well as an outline of what they believed really happened to Taylor the day she went missing. I told you in opening statement on Monday that you were going to hear a lot of different information from a lot of different people. And the reason that you heard so much is because it's important for you to understand how all these different lives and all these different people and all these different relationships, uh, dysfunctional and all, how they all kind of overlapped and intertwined and intersected. For instance, without hearing from Jeff Wright, um, you would have no evidence of where this $100,000 came from and why. Um, not only that, but if you didn't hear from Jeff Wright, then you would probably think that he was suspect number one. Law enforcement did. But you heard from him, and you know that at the time Taylor went missing, uh, he didn't even live in Florida. Same with Zach MacArthur, Brandon Beatty, Kyle Britt, Audrey Warner, and Cassandra. These were all people that law enforcement looked into as possibly having some sort of involvement. 
You've heard from them all, and obviously they do not. It is the state's job to give you everything, the good, the bad, the ugly. And you may not like some of what you heard about Taylor Wright, but in this trial, she is the victim. So let's not forget that she was the 33-year-old mother of a child, and she was a human being. This defendant, after she murdered Taylor Wright and was being interrogated and questioned by police, used private personal information against Taylor to lead law enforcement on these wild goose chases of where Taylor may be. Ashley MacArthur used every tool she had against Taylor to deflect and distract and take the attention away from her own guilt. Taylor was supposed to be her friend. Taylor had a key to Ashley MacArthur's home. Taylor trusted this defendant with all that money. And this woman sat there hour after hour in those interviews. You saw her calm, cool, collected. Not one ounce of sadness or concern or worry for her friend that was missing. She was so forthcoming about all the bad things that Taylor did, but you know what she wasn't forthcoming about? Those deposits of Taylor's money that she made and that property on Britt Road. And why? Because as she sat there giggling and laughing and joking with law enforcement on September 18th, she knew that Taylor was out there on Britt Road because that's where she murdered her and that's where she tried to cover up her body. Those are the facts and the evidence in this case. The only three things that the state has to prove in this case are number one, Taylor Wright is dead. That's been proven beyond a reasonable doubt. Number two, the death was caused by the criminal act of Ashley MacArthur. That has been proven beyond a reasonable doubt and that there was a premeditated killing of Taylor Wright. September 7th, 2017. The world would be a better place without Taylor. How much cocaine would it take to kill someone? September 7th, later that same night, who's she texting? T, the drug dealer at Babes. And she deleted them. What did she buy the next morning? A beer. What did she tell Audrey she was gonna do? She was gonna put that cocaine in a beer for Taylor to drink. When Audrey asked Ashley, what did you end up doing with the cocaine? She said, I put it in the beer and Taylor spit it out because it tasted sour. About 24 hours later, she's in the Home Depot buying the concrete and the potting soil. Taylor Wright shot in the back of the head. Why is that significant? Because Ashley MacArthur was constantly talking about how tough Taylor was and she always had firearms. She's a, she's a prior law enforcement officer. She knows how to protect herself. Ladies and gentlemen, Ashley MacArthur had the motive. Ashley MacArthur had the opportunity. Ashley MacArthur murdered Taylor Wright. And then she tried to cover it up with lies, concrete, and potting soil. Throughout the trial, the defense did their job, trying to create reasonable doubt in the minds of the jury 
bringing suspicion on various people other than Ashley. But in the end, it only took the jury two hours to deliberate. In the circuit court in and for Escambia County, Florida, State of Florida versus Ashley Britt MacArthur, verdict as to the charge in count one, we the jury find the defendant Ashley MacArthur guilty of first degree premeditated murder with a firearm as charged in the indictment. So say we all dated August 30th, 2019. Ashley MacArthur was found guilty of Taylor Wright's murder and sentenced to life in prison with a mandatory 25 years. In a separate trial, she was also found guilty of racketeering and fraud and given an additional seven years in prison. To Taylor's loved ones, it was a bittersweet end to a horrific nightmare. Not only had Ashley heartlessly murdered Taylor in cold blood, she'd taken advantage of Taylor's trust and vulnerable situation. Someone who had considered her a friend Ashley had also attempted to assassinate Taylor's character throughout the entire investigation. By not admitting to her guilt, she then dragged all of Taylor's loved ones through the pain and humiliation trials tend to entail. Although Taylor Wright's murderer had finally been brought to justice, nothing could make up for the gaping hole left in the lives of those who loved Taylor or repair the damage Ashley inflicted on Taylor's legacy. At only seven years old, Taylor's son lost his mother, forever missing all of his future milestones and successes in life. It's evident looking at photos of Taylor and her son, how much she absolutely loved and adored him. In the essay written by Taylor's old friend and posted online before her murder trial, she imparts an insightful and poignant message that serves as an important reminder as we hear about the tragedy surrounding murder cases like Taylor's. In the essay she wrote, murder victims don't have a chance to write their own ending. The falling action in their stories is forcibly penned by the murderer. Subsequent media will write postscripts that focus on the most click-worthy facts or speculation. I imagine Taylor is at least as angry that she's seen as a victim as she is to have lost her life. But that's not a story told. None of her story is told, in fact. On the internet, victims that die are victims forever. The murdered lose their right to both future chapters and authorship, the right to make amends or mistakes, their right to write and rewrite their lives interrupted not only mid-chapter, but often mid-sentence. What's more, during the course of the looming murder trial, there will be depositions inevitable character assassination, probable victim blaming. Taylor will be unable to explain or defend herself against any of it, but it will all fall into the canon of discoverable information about her on the internet. I don't know everything Taylor would want to be remembered for, but I know it wouldn't be a victim. Her life was far bigger, bolder, than its too soon end. She'd want to be known as a good friend and a badass, she was both. And now I would like to introduce the podcast, True Consequences. 
Hey, Minds of Madness listeners, this is Eric Carter-Landin, the host and producer of True Consequences Podcast. True Consequences is a true crime and mystery podcast with stories based in New Mexico and the American Desert Southwest. I started this show to bring light to cases that need to be solved in my state. You see, my brother was murdered 34 years ago, and his murderer still walks free. So I cover cases with an empathetic lens, because I understand what it's like to seek justice for a family member. I hope you'll give True Consequences a chance. You can find me wherever you listen to podcasts. The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness. And on Twitter, using the handle at Madness Pod. And finally, the closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerrorecords.com.au slash G-E.